Good morning. Those of you visiting with us today, we want to welcome you. Uh, my name is uh, Pastor Jeff, and I'm serving here as the interim pastor. And we are really glad to have you with us. Before we dive into the word, uh, a couple of things. Um, first of all, I just want to remind you that next week uh, on January 26th, after the service, uh, we're going to have some refreshments after the service, and then we're going to have our annual meeting. And our district superintendent, uh, Tom Flanders, is going to be here, uh, and he's going to make a, a presentation that, that's part of, uh, going to be part of the annual meeting. And so it's uh, really important. It's an important meeting as we look at the future of ISA, of IAS, IAC, thank you. That's what I get for trying to use initials. I should have just said what I, what I wanted to say. Anyway, so we hope that you'll be here. Um, obviously, again, uh, to remind you this as well, that members have the opportunity to vote uh, uh, as part of the annual meeting, but everybody's invited uh, to come, whether you're a member or, or not. And uh, this morning, we're going to invite those who are going to come and take these, this morning's offering, if you come at this time. And uh, as they come, would you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for this morning, for an opportunity to come out on this uh, sunny day, even though it's cold, and to come and to worship you as brothers and sisters in Christ, as family, as, as friends. And Father, we acknowledge your your presence in the midst of all that we do and say. We pray that as we continue in this service that all glory and honor would be yours as we give this morning. It is with a heart that is thankful for all that we have received from you. And Lord, that we'd ask that you would use these monies for the furthering of your, your kingdom, that people would come to know Jesus Christ. As we give, we give thanks and we give in his precious name. Amen. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to ask if you'd turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, going to be reading verses 1 through 6. Last week we, did, we read 1 through 13, so this is a portion uh, of that again. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So I said we began this uh, study last week that'll carry us for, for a while. And we said that what was really important as we work our way through these 10 commandments is the foundation of who they were given to, that they were given to people who had already been released from the slavery of Egypt, that had already been delivered, and now we're on this journey to the promised land, 
that the intent of the word was, first of all, to reveal sin. And in revealing sin, helping us to come to the realization that we can't fulfill these commandments in and of ourselves. And that the third purpose of the law of these commandments was to drive us to Christ, who is our only hope, who is our future. That these words were not given to make our lives smaller, more condensed, but in fact were, we used the example of walls of a garden that would serve to protect those who lived within them and that there was incredible freedom in, the living, in living and working in that garden. So this morning we want to kind of jump kind of right into the text and uh, it is the deep end of the pool. <laughs> it is, these are some hard words for us to even kind of wrap our, our mind around. And so we have been praying this week that the Holy Spirit would reveal what he wants to speak to, to us about those. So he says right off the bat, you shall not bow down or worship idols. To bow down simp simply means to serve or to give devotion to, to idols. Worship speaks of love. So he's saying you shall not give your devotion, you now shall not serve idols, you shall not love idols. That seems to me very clear, pretty straightforward into what we are called not to do. But what isn't so clear maybe is how subtly we fashion and shape idols. That we don't understand always how we have turned away from God and suddenly idols have come into our lives. So let's begin with a, a real simple definition of what an idol is, what idolatry is. One definition of an idol is this, that which has no substance but can be seen. That's a little bit hard to unpack, but think of it of, as, as a block of wood, as a block of wood as, a, as an idol. It can be seen, it can be touched, but there's nothing behind it. There's, there's no life behind that inanimate object. That's an idol. When we turn our attention to that, which we can see, what we can touch, but has nothing behind it. Contrast that I, definition of an idol with Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, in which the writer of Hebrews defines faith. He says this, Now faith is confident in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. So faith talks about a reality that is real, that has substance to it, but that you can't see. The opposite of an idol. So that's part of the appeal of an idol. An idol is something that, that we can fashion. And we fashion to something that, that, that makes us feel comfortable, that, that promises to give us what, what we want. Idols that offer us happiness, offers, 
idols that offer us comfort, that guarantee our success, that will get behind our cause, maybe even belong to the same political party that we belong to, that doesn't confront us in our sin. Say, okay, well, that's one image of, of, of an idol. Sometimes we, we fashion God into what we feel comfortable with or, or what we think he should be. For some people, they, they believe in a God that is, is like, um, like a, a state trooper who's hiding behind a billboard with his radar gun waiting for us to catch us speeding and just ready to jump on us and give us a ticket. For some people, that's how they view God, just waiting, waiting for us to mess up. For other people, their vision of God, how they've fashioned God is, God is a, is a kindly old man who, who sits on the front porch in his rocking chair, waiting for us to come up and ask our questions. He's, he's a, a wise old sage who, who has the answers to to our questions. And that's who we see, see God as. And when we fashion God into something that we think he should be, that we feel comfortable with, that is idolatry. That is what this first commandment is talking about. What caught me personally, about these first verses in, in Exodus chapter 20 was the energy in the heart that is behind it, that comes out in that, that simple, those simple words of verse 5 where we read this, I am a jealous God. I am a jealous God. That strikes me for a couple reasons. First of all, because I've always thought that jealousy is not something that, that's good. <laughs> that jealousy speaks of need. Jealous is, is something that Christians are not supposed to be. And yet this word says that God is a jealous God and that that's the energy that is behind this, this first commandment. So for a second, just put behind us what we typically think of jealousy as being. Jealousy as being needy. Jealousy as being wanting to, to, to control, as, as, as being small or, or petty or, or self-centered. And think about why, what this word reveals about, about the heart of God because it tells us something about who God is and how he sees us and how he wants to, to relate to us and why idolatry is so damaging and hurtful. God discloses something about himself in these words in which, again, he's reminded them of what? He says, I'm the God who delivered you. I'm the God who redeemed you out of slavery in Egypt. I'm, I'm the God who sent manna from heaven. I'm the God who provided for you. I'm all those things. 
But when he says this, he reveals one more thing about himself, and it's this. He says, I am a jealous lover. And as a jealous lover, I have very strong feelings, a passion for my people. The word of God reveals us that God had a passion for us, a love for us, even before the world was created. And then he says, we've learned this already about him in, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, that he, his, he's inclined to us. He hears our prayers. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them cry out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Being more than aware of the suffering, or, or even that concern sounds distant, it's, it, it's my heart is broken over their suffering. And then he says this again about himself. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Today we live in even a further revelation of who he is because now he has sent his son Jesus Christ to show us just how passionate he is in pursuing a people who will belong exclusively to him. That is why when we embrace another image or another idol, he reacts, and God reacts strongly because he's incapable of being dispassionate about our disobedience. So let's explore this idea for a second of, of God as our lover. Even as I say that, and I say those words, and I hear them ringing in my ears, they, they don't make me feel particularly comfortable because it's something beyond my, my comfort level. Brennan Manning, who, who is a, a writer, talks about God as, as a wild lover, which makes me even more uncomfortable. See, I'm okay with this. God is love. Or God so loved the world because because in that, I can keep God at a distance. Yes, is God, God is love. And God loves the world. I can keep God at an arm's distance with those thoughts. But the idea of, of God as a lover of our souls uh, sounds almost sacrilegious. I'm a lot more comfortable with God as my king. And I am his subject. I am much more comfortable with a God who, who reigns, and I am just a person who follows his leadership. But if the fact is that he wants something more than that in a relationship, it suddenly dawns on me that he might want more for me than just an hour on Sunday. Or he might want more from me than just a couple words that I pray before I sit and I have a meal. That he won't be satisfied with a dispassionate relationship. 
It is our natural tendency to want to protect ourselves, to, to kind of cover up. I prefer a God who, who isn't so passionate about his relationship with me. And when I embrace that kind of a concept of who God is, that is idolatry. The Word of God uses a number of images or metaphors for who God is and who we are in relationship with him. And I want to suggest to explore those for a second in a, in a certain order because they kind of climb to where we want to go. So one of the first images that, that we hear about in scripture is this, what? God is a potter and I am clay. I'm just this, this moldable material that, that God wants to shape into what he wants to shape it into. And that's, I don't mean to disparage that, that's, that's a really important picture of what God wants to shape us. So we are just this, we are this thing that, that God in our lives is shaping us into something that he desires, a potter in clay. The second image is this of, of God as shepherd. We are really familiar with this. The Lord is my shepherd. So the Lord is my shepherd and I'm a lamb. I'm, I'm a sheep who tends to wander off and who, who God comes and gets when he wanders off, puts me on his shoulders and carries me back to a place of safety. A, a great image, the Lord as, as my, my shepherd who tends for me, who puts me in places of blessing. A third image that, that we see in scripture is this of master and servant. This is different because now I'm not, a, I'm not a piece of clay, I'm not an animal, now I'm in the house. <laughs> I'm a shepherd, I mean, I'm, I'm a servant. And, and so God is, God is the master of the house, I'm a servant in the house, and my job is to do, is to do his bidding. And there's a, there's a nobility in that, there, again, there is a, a, it's a beautiful picture. But see, for, for many Christians, never move beyond that of, of potter to clay, of shepherd to sheep, of master to, to servant. And if that's all we see ourselves as, then our job, primary job is what? It's just to do what we are told to do and be moldable. But there's another level. Another image that we have in scripture is this, God as our Abba Father. This is a, an intimate relationship. It's, the, it's the, the idea of allowing God to reshape our idea of, of father and what a father, who a father is and what a father does can be incredible healing, incredibly healing for people who've grown up in a household without a father or with a damaged relationship. But with being a child to a, to a father, and we now have access to come to him anytime we desire with, with our joys, with our hurts, with our needs. God is our father. 
The next image that comes is that God as our friends, as our friend. This is a little bit different, and it, it's almost more of an even relationship where there's, there's give and take. In a family, you don't get to pick your family. But with a friend, you get to choose your friend. And, and so this idea of God choosing to be friends with us because, because he likes us is a whole different dimension of, of relationship. Because it's, when Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I call you friends. That is incredibly impactful. But the most frightening for me, the most frightening biblical image that comes as well is this, is Jesus Christ as the groom and his church as his bride. That is far more intimate. John Eldridge in his book, um, The Sacred Romance, writes this. The courtship that began with the honeymoon in the garden will culminate in the wedding feast of the Lamb. So the relationship that began as a honeymoon in the garden, we know will one day end in this wonderful banquet called the wedding feast of the Lamb. Isaiah chapter 62 verse 5 says this, I will delight in you, God says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, I will rejoice over you. God rejoicing over his people. So God, not just as a potter and, and clay, or a sheep and shepherd, or a master and servant, or a child and a father, or a friend to a friend, he now says he wants to be in a relationship where he is our groom, our husband, and we are his bride. Do you remember the first time you fell in love? How consuming that was. How everything related about that other person who now they had begun to show interest in you and you were pursuing them or they were pursuing you and it was, it's, it's exhilarating, it's, it's exciting to have that kind of relationship. And to know this, that, that God's love is just as real as that, it's fully engaged, it is passionate, and that he is incapable of being dispassionate about you and about me and his love for us. And that is why when we embrace an idea other than the one that is revealed to us about who God is, he reacts and he reacts so strongly. Now the question that comes to my mind about all this is why would God do that? Why would God enter into a relationship with us where the potential is there for his heart to be broken? Why would he take that gamble? He could, he could have chosen a different way. 
When Adam and Eve fought, fell, he could have just started over and he goes, okay, this time, no free will. <laughs> you don't get to choose whether you love me or not. I'm going to force you to love me. You're not going to have that as part of, it, part of your life. He could have obliterated that idea of, of free choice and free will. He could have demanded allegiance of our hearts. So there would be incredible pain any time we began to, to walk away. And yet if he did that, the relationship that started out as a love affair would no longer be that. It would be something completely different. And so he gives us the choice to love him or not. And in that, he calls us out away from idols. And I think that it's only as we begin to get a glimpse of the desire that God has for our hearts to have a relationship that is reflected in part as a relationship between a husband and wife, that only as we get an idea of that, we understand the pain that is involved when we give ourselves to idols. When we fall for the lies and the seductions of the enemy of our soul. And so God in his infinite wisdom and infinite love for us puts right up front, verse 5, when he says, I am the Lord your God. And I am a jealous, jealous God. You shall not bow down. You shall not serve. You shall not be devoted. You shall not love anyone else but me. So paraphrasing that here again, to hear the energy in the heart, I give you these words as God would speak them to us. When you embrace another lover, I will react. Because we are intended to have this relationship that's bet more than potter and clay, sheep and shepherd, master and servant, father and child, friend to friend. We are intended to have a relationship where I have full access to your heart and you have full access to my heart. That's the invitation that God gives to us right up front. Which leaves us with another question. The question, first question I think is, is obvious, are you comfortable with that? <clears throat> Again, if we're comfortable with that, we, I, haven't, I haven't clearly communicated what's behind that. But the real more important question is, are we ready for that? Are we ready for that kind of relationship where God wants every fiber, every cell of our lives given to him? Because I think if we do understand that, we would feel incredibly uncomfortable, maybe even a little frightened because we're entering into a relationship with God who is a passionate God, who is incapable 
of just letting us wander off and not reacting. And to be able to answer that question, do I want, am I ready for that kind of relationship, you have to know this about God, that his intentions are always good towards us, always good. No matter what circumstances are, his intention is always good. And that we can, second of all, we can trust him. But it's not, from our perspective, a safe relationship. Because we put everything on the line when we enter into that kind of relationship. There's an old quote <clears throat> um, I've used a lot. But it's, it's from C.S. Lewis, and it's from the, uh, the book The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. And uh, in, in, if you don't know the story, it's kind of a fable, but it's with a Christian background. And there's a character in the book series who's called Aslan. And Aslan is a lion, and Aslan is, represents Jesus that is laid out in those stories. So there is this, this conversation between one of the children who's come to visit Narnia and Mrs. Beaver. And she's asking Mrs. Beaver about Aslan, about the lion. Susan, on hearing of Aslan, the lion, who is the Christ, says to Mrs. Beaver, I thought he was going to be a man. I didn't know he was going to be a lion. Is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver responds to her. She says, Make no mistake, dear. If anyone can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than most or just plain stupid. <laughs> then Lucy, another girl in the story, asks this. Is he safe? Is he safe? Safe? Mrs. Beaver said, who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And he is the king who is good. To enter into a deeper relationship with God means we are opening ourselves to potential that our lives will be turned upside down. And that things will never be the same. And that God will settle for nothing less than our lives. And it's the God who holds out his hand, invites us into this, this relationship. Not a God who we've defined that, that makes us feel comfortable and who acts the way we think he should act. But a God who is a wild lover a lion who is not safe in terms of guaranteeing that we get what we want. So yes, maybe we should be a little hesitant. Maybe we should even be 
a little frightened to truly understand what God is calling us into. But whether we choose to enter into that depth of relationship or not, understand this about God. He continues to pursue us. And he will not relent in pursuing us until he has every fiber of our being. Is he safe? Who said anything about him being safe? But he is good and he is trustworthy. And until we get to know that in the depths of our hearts, we'll never leave our idols behind. Let's pray together. Father, it strikes me that we, in some ways, may find these Ten Commandments safe. Um, we've seen them on plaques. Some of us have them in our house. They used to be on public buildings. They seem really straightforward. These are the things we do, these are the things we don't do to have a good relationship with God and with each other. But we see that they reveal so much more about who you are. And so we repent this morning of the idols that we have and are bowing down to and worshiping. Of how we have fashioned you in our thinking into what makes us feel comfortable. And how you revealed to us that you are the lover of our souls and that you are unrelenting in your passion to possess our hearts. In any ways that we have or continue to try to protect ourselves against that kind of an intimacy, we drop our hands. And we reach out for your hand that invites us into this deeper relationship. Lord, lead us into your goodness. Lead us to a place where we trust you more and more each day. And that we walk deeper and deeper and deeper in this love relationship you've called us to. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we uh, draw to a close this morning, I invite you all to be here at the front of the church if you'd like uh, prayer for any reason. We'd love to have you pray. If not, we hope that you'll have a blessed day. I'm going to ask you to stand. And I want, as we do each week, we kind of end with a reading of a scripture as a benediction, as a closing prayer. And I want to read um, this portion of actually a verse that I read from Isaiah chapter 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name, 
that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Go in his blessings.